How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Well, I'm James, the student ministries pastor at New Hope, and I am excited to share with you this morning. Um, we're going to be continuing. This is part six of our series that, through the Jesus Story Book Bible. And I want to say something up front. Today is going to be a little dense, okay? There's going to be a lot of stuff. It's going to feel like a fire hose of information. And I would just encourage you to take some notes. Be note people this morning. Take down some notes. There's going to be a lot of stuff. Um, but I, I think if there's something that strikes you, write it down. I think there's going to be a lot for you to be able to come back to in the future, particularly if you walk yourself through the Ten Commandments and go, what am I, what am I missing, Lord? So um, does that sound good? Okay. Awesome. Okay. So, um, as you saw a little bit ago, we watched the Jesus Storybook Bible video. We are focusing our attention this morning on the Ten Commandments. Uh, last week, Danya did an incredible job of setting the stage for us this morning. She reminded us last week that God is a rescuer, right? God is a deliverer. And the overarching story of the scripture is the story of a God who is loving, who will go to great lengths to make sure that he can be in a relationship with his people so that he can be with them, so that he can give them life and life to the full, a life of flourishing. And as Danya highlighted, he can give them freedom, right? And the Ten Commandments actually point us to what freedom and flourishing looks like for us as the people of God. So, Let's begin by reading the scripture together. Um, I'm going to read, I'm going to have us all read the bolded stuff all together, and I will read the rest of it. So I'll read through the whole thing. You're only going to read for the bold stuff. So would you go ahead and stand with me as we read the scripture together? And this is going to be a long one, guys. This is like a three-pager up there, so just be prepared, because we're going to read through the whole Ten Commandments, all right? So um, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, here we go. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other gods but me. You must not make for yourselves an idol or of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will tolerate your affections for any other God. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, uh, and any foreigner living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother, then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, 
ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. We made it. I didn't know if we were going to make it. I am a terrible group reader guy, <laughs> uh, as you learned last time together, but we, we did it. All right, so the Ten Commandments are interesting, and I would say that many, in many ways they are misunderstood. When I was growing up, I was not raised in church. So every time that I went to church, it was like a new, weird, and foreign experience for me. Everything that I was taking in was new. And every so often, I would go to church with my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And, um, and one thing I do remember was learning about the Ten Commandments in Sunday school. Y'all remember learning about the Ten Commandments in Sunday school? Anybody in here? Yeah, a lot of us. Uh, my takeaway from, from learning and singing about the Ten Commandments as a kid was this. There are good people and there are bad people. Good people keep all the rules, and bad people are not able to keep all the rules. Now, I'm sure that was not the intention of the Sunday school teacher for me to grab that, but I remember walking away on one occasion feeling like I was on the outside looking in, right? Like they were the good people, right? The church people, and I was one of the bad people. Right? In my upbringing, I grew up regularly seeing these Ten Commandments broken. Right? I grew up seeing theft all the time, marital and relational unfaithfulness in my own family and the people around me. I remember hearing rumors and lies told about the neighbors and about us. And you better believe that I was in the way that I grew up being poor, I coveted the heck out of my neighbors and their video game systems that I did not have, right? Especially because theirs were brand new and mine were like three generations earlier if we even had anything. The feeling of being one of the bad people was reaffirmed for me and reinforced for me later on. Did you ever have one of those memories as a kid where you don't quite remember all the details or all that was said, but you can just feel like you have a sense that you know what was said and what happened? You guys have memories like that as a kid? They're kind of vague? Okay. Well, one, one weekend, my mom and my siblings all came to church with my aunt and uncle and myself, which was a rare occasion. Uh, Again, I wasn't exactly sure what, what happened, but I know that it was the first time I ever remember my mom going to church. It also, happens to be, it also happened to be the last time I ever remember my mom going to church that same Sunday. My mom ended up leaving the church that Sunday in tears and never came back again. I, I overheard some whispers between my parents. You know, parents have conversations that are not necessarily for kids' ears, right? And from what I could understand, someone at the church had commented I'm getting emotional about it. <laughs> Comments to my mom about her unruly kids, right? How they were out of line at church. And from that deep, painful tears that I saw my mom cry, I could tell that she had some, the same feelings that I had. Like we didn't belong. We were bad people. And they were the good people. They followed all the rules, but we didn't, right? And somehow, because of their good behavior, they were able to be acceptable to God and acceptable in church. Because of our bad behavior, we were unwelcome at church and unacceptable to participate with God and his people, or at least until we got our act together. Has anybody felt that in this room? Yeah, lots of us. Well, my mom felt what I felt as a small child, and even into my adolescence, and it's a very common misconception and altogether untrue. And I would say that one misconception, this one misconception they had was a stumbling block for both mine and my mom's faith. And it kept being a stumbling block for me uh, as I came into my adolescence. But it kept being 
Let me say that again. I would say that one misconception was, this one misconception was a stumbling block for both mine and my mom's faith, and it kept us from experiencing life, life and freedom that comes from following Jesus. Okay, so as we jump in, I'm going. I'm hoping to do two things this morning. The first thing is this: I want to help us to grasp this big idea. And here's the big idea: the Ten Commandments are meant for our flourishing and our freedom. The Ten Commandments are meant for our freedom and our flourishing. And in order to really grasp that, what we're going to do this morning is the second thing. We're going to walk through three common misconceptions about the Ten Commandments. And just to clarify, we won't walk through all the Ten Commandments. Hallelujah. We would be here for like nine hours, okay? So we're not going to do that. Um, But at the end, I'm going to walk through one of the Ten Commandments once we have got a, a little bit more understanding and a framework for what these Ten Commandments are all about. Does that sound good? Okay, let's start by praying. Jesus, we want to learn from your word. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts and our minds and our whole selves up to what you want to teach us this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you do a deep work in us? Would you bring understanding and peace and joy as we embrace what your word says this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's look at three common misconceptions and assumptions about the Ten Commandments, okay? And this first one is is sort of the one that I developed as a child and is really common, and is this. We keep the Ten Commandments so that we can be saved, loved, or worthy, right? That's the misconception. So the idea is, like, if we do all the right things, right, if we are good enough, God will save us, and, and, and we'll in some way be worthy to receive his salvation and his love, right? Here's the truth. The Ten Commandments were not for salvation, all right? But they were given to an already saved and loved people for their flourishing and to show the world what God is like. Here's the deal. The Israelites were already saved when they received the Ten Commandments, yeah? Like, they were already delivered. God had already delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. Even though they didn't deserve it or earn it, he displayed his grace towards them. And at this point, it had been just over two months since God had delivered them from Egypt. And he parted the Red Sea and he delivered them from their, from their captors. And enslaved people were suddenly a free people, right? And of course, he reminds them of that right off the top, right at the top of these Ten Commandments. And we already read it, but Exodus twenty twelve, I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. But here's the thing. They were chosen by him to be a special possession, right? His special possession. But they didn't know how to live as free people yet. And the Lord needed to teach them, right? When he led them into the desert, they had, they had only experienced, like their whole lives and their parents, their parents before them, had only experienced the empire of Egypt, right? The culture, their culture and their way of being. And here's the, they'd been slaves for 400 years, right? I think it's like 430 years. So they were primed and ready to live as what? Egyptians and as slaves, right? But they, they weren't ready to live as the people of God. God invited them into a better way to live as his people should live. And it was true for the Israelites, and the same is true for us. 
Our behavior does not save us or make God love or treasure us any more or any less. I hope you hear that this morning. But we are saved by grace through faith and what ends up following is our behavior, right? You've heard this saying before and, and, and it goes like this. You don't have to change your behavior to come to Jesus, right? But come to Jesus and he will change your behavior. Have you heard that before? I believe that with every fiber of my being. You don't have to change yourself, change your life to come to Jesus, but come to Jesus and he will change your behavior. And the Apostle Paul echoes this and and affirms this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by God's grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, For we are God's workmanship, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were not saved because of something that you did. You were saved because God loves you and has offered you a free gift. Amen? Amen. It's true for all of us. But now, but now that we are saved, right, it impacts what we do. It should impact what you do. Now that you are saved, now that we are saved, we allow Jesus through his Holy Spirit to work through the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us over time into what? People of love, into his image. A few weeks back, I talked about, uh, I, I talked a little bit about creation, right? About what God intended humans to be when he made them. And I said this, you were made good by God to do good. You were made good by God to do good. God's original intent is that we would image him, is the thing that I said. We would image God to the world. Show the world what he is like by the way that we live and love people around us. And this is key for us to get. The greatest good that you can do is become the person of love and be that person everywhere that God has placed you no matter your vocation or your location. That is the greatest thing that you can do. And that's what God was intending for the Israelites when he gave them the Ten Commandments. It was his way of saying, hey, you learned an old way of living from the empire, but now you have a new way of living. And your way of living, and this way of living, will show the world what I am like. And to do that, it means you live out the Ten Commandments. And that's what he wants for us as well. Okay, so all that to say, the Ten Commandments were not for salvation, but given to an already saved people for their flourishing and to show them, show the world what God is like. Okay, so second misconception. That was number one. Second misconception about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are oppressive restrictive, and keep us from really living and having freedom, right? You've probably heard that in culture, right? Right? The Christianity is oppressive. But here's the truth, all right? The limits and clear boundaries of the Ten Commandments are a gift and actually help us to have freedom and to flourish more, not less. Author Carmen Imes, Joy Imes, said this in a book I just read called Bearing the Name of God. It's a book about the Ten Commandments and one specifically. She said this. He saved them first 
right? We've already talked about that. And then gave them the gift that goes with salvation, instruction on how to live free, as free men and women. Moses and the psalmist both recognized that they were better off for it. They realized that true freedom requires clearly communicated boundaries. They recognized the grace of God's law. It was a gift. Okay, a little illustration to help you with this. Imagine putting up a playground, all right, in the busiest intersection in Salem. Let's say Court Street and Commercial downtown, right? Okay, wouldn't it be odd if somebody argued that the kids would have more fun if the playground didn't have a fence? <laughs> wouldn't that be, that would be weird. It, it would be super strange. And why? Because we know that putting a fence between a car, a moving car, and kids is a good idea, right? Like, we, we know this to be true. It makes total sense. Fences let us know our kids can play freely without dying and getting hit by a car, right? And a good playground always includes some sort of physical boundaries. And here's the deal. A fence is a gift, right? A playground with no fences isn't really freedom. It is an accident that is waiting to happen. Yeah? We can all agree on that. And the bottom line is, we adults, all of us, we need boundaries as humans to flourish and to truly be free. And that is what the Ten Commandments were meant to do, to give us that boundary. God gave them to the Israelites as a picture of what it looked like to flourish as God's God's people, as individuals, and as a community, to keep them from the pain and the heartache and the death that comes when we choose to do things our way and not his way. And without clear boundaries, we would be left either to our own devices, right, or the whims of culture, the culture that we're a part of. And Danya pointed this out. I sort of rephrased her thing, but she framed this for us last week really wonderfully. We ultimately end up with like three options, okay? There's three places that we look for freedom and flourishing, okay? The first thing, we either look to ourselves, right? Like trust your own heart. Like trust your intuition. Trust the patterns that you've already developed, right? Your habits, so we either look to ourselves, or two, we look to the empire. And by the empire, I mean culture, right? The isms and the ideologies of our time and the space that we live in, right? The things that float around and like, yeah, that's totally true, right? So we either look to ourselves, we look to the empire, or we look to God, right? Who has the wisdom and the foresight and actually knows what we need. And without God... We are left to rely on the voice inside of our heads and the voice of culture rather than the voice of God, right, for our flourishing. And the voices say something that is very different from what God says, yeah? Those voices say something that oftentimes is exactly the opposite of what God says because God has given us boundaries and limits so that we might flourish, but here's the key, the thing we need to understand. Our culture says that we should be limitless, doesn't it? Like, that we can never have enough. You can do anything. Don, you pointed this out too. You can do anything. You can be anything. You can have anything. As long as you dream it and you believe it and you work hard enough, you can achieve it. Right? That's what our culture says. Not true. 
Can you repeat something after me? I'll do what Reed did. My turn, then your turn. So my turn. I am limited. I am limited. Say that again. I am limited. I cannot provide for myself. You and I were made for complete dependence on God. Oh, sorry. You don't have to repeat that. But it's true. <laughs> Get it down in your bones. I never, man, I'm not a teacher, so I forget to tell you not to do things. I'm just so willing. <laughs> you and I were made for complete dependence on God, which is totally worthy of repeating. Because you are limited and I am limited, and we are limited. And anyone who tells you different is just echoing the lie of the enemy that goes back all the way to the garden, right? Satan's lie, put quite simply, was this, that you can flourish without God. You can be limitless like God, right? What did the enemy come to do? Jesus told us what the enemy came to do. He comes with that lie. Here's what he says in John 10.10. 10. This is Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life, you and I, and have it to the full. That means life abundantly. That means flourishing. The thief, right, Satan, the serpent, wants you to believe that there is no need for boundaries in any area of your life. That's what he wants to believe. So any voice that echoes that is telling, retelling a lie. It starts at the very beginning. You may not have caught this, but the Ten Commandments actually put a limit on how much you should have. Don't steal. Don't covet. They actually put a limit on who you should rely on. Don't have other gods. Don't make idols. And they actually put a limit on how hard you should work. Like, keep the Sabbath and don't work seven days a week. You're not a slave anymore. You can take time off and it's okay and it's actually really good for you. People get all bent out of shape about that. What's, who doesn't want to take a day off every week? You're not that important. Like your work is, it's going to be okay. Don't be a slave to your work, right? So he puts a limit on some of these things for us. But we literally exhaust ourselves as a culture trying to ignore those commands. Our culture our cultural standard for flourishing, honestly, to put it into one word, is exhausting. It's exhausting. And here's what I mean. I'm just going to give you a quick version of our culture's version of the good life. There's, there's more to it than this, but this is something that I see and experience, okay? I need to own the newest version of everything, right? Like, you have to have a house with a guest bedroom that's decorated like Chip and Joanne Gaines decorates their house, right? You have to vacation and travel everywhere. You have to be an Instagram and TikTok influencer, right? You have to look good while you do it, too, right? Like, fashion forward. The cultural, the cultural standard says, I need to say all of the right things, know all of the right things, and loudly and publicly stand up against injustice, and stand for those things. And I have to have perfect kids that never spend more than a couple minutes on devices in the entire day. iPads, phones, all of the things. <laughs> Which is wisdom in that. So we do limit it, but seriously. I can never appear, and, and the other thing that it says is I can never, never appear to not be all of those things, right? Even if I have to fake it or conceal that I am really those things. Who has ever felt the pressure of keeping up with all of that? And he put, yeah, hands all over the room. Here's what Jesus says. And he says this, this is the message version. I love this. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Are you tired? 
worn out, burned out on religion, which by the way, the American dream is a form of religion. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's not worthy of, of what God's worthy of, okay? Burned out on religion. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The Ten Commandments were not given to be oppressive, restrictive, or to keep you from really living and having freedom. They are a gift. They are a gift and help you to have freedom and to flourish more, not less. They tell us who we are really meant to be as people. And they tell us how to live freely and lightly. And as we walk alongside Jesus in apprenticeship or discipleship, he teaches us what life and life to the full, right, flourishing, really looks like. Okay. So the third misconception that we commonly hear and have about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments no longer matter because of Jesus. The Ten Commandments no longer matter because of Jesus. And here's the truth. Jesus not only affirmed the Ten Commandments with his teachings, but he invited us to continue to live them out. Okay, and I'll get to how that is and what that means. You may have heard something like this said before, okay? Jesus lived perfectly and kept the law so I don't have to. Or, we're not under the law anymore, so we don't have to worry about what it says. Which, these statements are not, get me, these statements are not outright completely false, all right? But they carry with them, as, as far as I've heard them, they carry with them the underlying implication that how we live doesn't really matter. Because, right, because we're over... We're overcomers through the blood of Jesus. We're heaven bound, so it really doesn't matter how we live, right? Unfortunately, that flies in the face of what Jesus taught. Okay, and this is where the story of the Ten Commandments begin to whisper the name of Jesus just a little bit louder. Because similar to Moses, Jesus went up onto a mountain too, didn't he? And he delivered a message to his people. Right? The disciples and the crowds that were listening. And we now call that the Sermon on the Mount, right? And like the Ten Commandments, Jesus painted a picture of what it looks like in his kingdom. He painted a picture of what it looks like for flourishing and to truly be human. And some have called it his kingdom manifesto. I like that language. And here's what Jesus said early on in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 17. Do not think that I, can't, I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to abolish, or I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right? He fulfilled them with his life. He, does, he goes on to teach on murder and adultery and divorce, enemy love, generosity and prayer, the love of money and possessions, worry about God's provision and judging others. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like what we just read in the Ten Commandments, because it's all there. 
Jesus essentially covers the whole Ten Commandments and then affirms them and then even goes on to explain what they mean and goes a little bit further, right? For example, murder. We will park on a commandment for just a second. He teaches that saying raka to your brother, which is essentially like saying idiot, idiot to them, is equivalent to murder. I thought killing, I thought killing somebody the regular old-fashioned way was murder. <laughs> But it turns out that just having the thought and thinking to yourself that somebody is an idiot makes you a murderer in your heart, according to Jesus, right? Uh, we asked our youth last, um, last Sunday night, like, look over the Ten Commandments. Is there something that you see there that you're like, man, this is hard to believe. I'm having difficulty living this out. And one of the boys in my group said, murder. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I really struggle with murder. Because if, if calling your brother is an idiot, then I'm a serial killer. <laughs> so good. I was like, yeah. And then I'm a serial killer too because of driving. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And then Jesus ends up, yeah, I changed my heart, Lord. I'm the worst when I drive. I think what I think about other people at least. Jesus ends up concluding the sermon with an invitation to obedience. As though living all of this out, right? Living out the Ten Commandments was actually a possibility. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 7. I think we went over this last time I preached, but it's so good. Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, right? He's assuming that you're going to put them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash, right? You have this opportunity of life and death before you to choose the way of Jesus or not. And he's like, you can choose it. Like, you can do it. You can be obedient to it. So Jesus isn't just presenting an idea to tell us that we cannot possibly live them that out at all. And like Moses, he's telling us who we are always, who we were always meant to be, and inviting us to actually live that way. And Jesus, like Moses, calls us into a new identity and calling. And I love, I love how Peter sums this up in 1 Peter. He kind of like takes what Moses was saying and that story, he takes our story and kind of melds them together and makes sense of all of it and what it means for us. So 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people, that's us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, right? We're all called to be that. The Israelites were to abstain from the desires of your flesh, which war against your soul. Conduct yourself with such honor among the Gentiles, right? Those who are not believing that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So we are called to walk alongside Jesus over a lifetime, right? Learning a new way of living. And we allow him to set and reset the boundaries 
and the boundary lines of our life. And over time, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we become people of love and our truest selves, the people that we were always meant to be, the people of God. And in doing so, the beautiful thing is that we get to live lightly, right? And we get to live a life that is not burdensome. And we get to show the world what God is like. We become people of love and joy and peace, right? Which can look so different than the frantic world of chaos and anxiety that we live in. Amen? Okay, so those are our three misconceptions. And I hope you get this. The Ten Commandments are for our flourishing. The Ten Commandments are for our flourishing. So we're going to go, we're going to take a minute, we're going to go through one commandment with our fresh perspective, okay? You guys ready for it? All right, here we go. The second commandment, okay? Have no idols. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, I'll read through it. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in heaven or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children and the entire family, or the entire family is affected. Even children in the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So right off the bat, you might be wondering about the sins of the parents being on the children for the third and fourth generation thing, which we will get to that. We'll make a little bit of, bring a little clarity to that. So put a pin in that. But the basic idea of the command is this. Like, you don't have to reduce the boundless nature of who God is and all of his immensity and condense it down into a created thing. And by the way, don't worship it. Because in worshiping it, you are giving it the time and the attention and the authority to influence your life in a way that is only reserved for God to do. And we usually do that by allowing something that is like good in our lives to be something that is ultimate. Meaning, like we live in a way that suggests that we cannot live without that thing, whatever that thing is, whatever that idol is for you. And here's the thing. God has already vested into something the capability of imaging God. This is another little review thing. Who, it's us. Like God has vested in, into us the ability to image God, right? So Genesis says that humans were actually made to rule over creation. So when we give into the temptation of having idols, what we do is we end up being ruled by something that we were actually created to rule over we're actually letting something have authority over us that only God is supposed to have over us, right? So we have lots of potential idols. Could be a substance, could be a hobby, could be stuff that we own or collect, could be a digital device, could be an ideology, could be a job or a career that we let be an idol in our lives, it could be our wealth, it could even be a relationship, it could be a person, right? Another person in our lives. So we're going to look at a couple of examples, okay? So low-hanging fruit. This is for everybody. Well, almost everybody. It's for me, that's for sure. Our TVs are digital devices, right? God is supposed to be our comfort, right? But we use TV, which 
can be a gift, right? Like you can experience art and beauty and learn things through like a television or a digital device, right? We use TV or things to be our comfort, right? To the language we use is to make it sound better. I'm just unwinding, to unwind, right? To cope with and escape from the reality of life and the difficulty of life. And what we really believe at the root is that it's going to bring us comfort, right? And it does for a while. We've all experienced that, but it'll never actually satisfy us the way that God can, right? And so our shows end and we're let down and we experience what's called a show hole. Anybody experienced a show hole before? <laughs> we're left feeling empty, right? It's, it's a real thing. I actually looked it up on the interwebs. And there's actually a definition, so I'm going to read it to you guys. A show hole, according to, I think, Wikipedia, a really reliable source. A show hole is the, sad, the sadness experienced after finishing an excellent TV show, season, or series. And there are no more readily available episodes leaving you to feel empty, right? <laughs> feeling completely... <laughs> The feeling commonly arises after binge-watching a show on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, etc., and you're in withdrawal. Oh, sheesh. <laughs> and we feel withdrawal because our phone or our tablet or our TV will never be able to bring us comfort the way that God can bring us comfort. Amen? It can make us numb for a while. It's pretty good at that, but not... Much more beyond that, right? Another example. Getting on, hooked on drugs or a substance, right? Meth, for example. Now, this seems like an extreme example, and it is, but I'm using this example because it's personal and it hits home for me. I grew up in a house in a neighborhood where meth and heroin and pain pills were an everyday reality. The thing about all of those things is that they rule over and they control your life. And they distort your image. Like, literally. Have you seen the big posters? You know, the big billboards that are like, your life before and after meth, and it's just a side-by-side -side picture. They distort who you are. And no matter who you started with, right, as, like you move from being a potentially a flourishing person even if you had your stuff together, to suddenly you are a shell of who you formerly were. It, distort, it, distort, it distorts who you were meant to be. Rather than God saying who you are, you're choosing to let meth or a substance determine who you will become and who you are, right? It just rules everything. And what it does and what it ends up doing is that it ends up wreaking havoc, not just on you, right? But your kids, and not just your kids, but potentially your kids' kids. It affects you, but beyond you to the third and the fourth generation, right? And your children are literally punished by the sins and lifestyle choices of the parents, right? I personally have parents and step-parents who have been hooked on meth and other drugs. And some of my siblings are and have been hooked on meth and heroin, and pain pills. And now, their kids, in fact, one of my older sister's kids, he also is hooked on meth, and, and pain pills, and heroin. And now their kids, you know, I have 
my nieces and nephews, some of them are bouncing from house to house and have no place to stay and call home. Having idols in your life affects you, but not just you, it affects your children. And not just your children, but it affects the community. Think about a community that has high meth use, property crimes, through the roof, right? So for most of us, okay, we're not using meth. Most of us in this room, agreed? Most of us in this meth room are not using meth. But if you do an inventory in your head right now, and maybe I'll have you do that, start getting your mind in the place, in your mind's eye, okay? Start to do an inventory. Is there something that you are giving your heart, your mind, and your attention to that is a good thing that you're letting be an ultimate thing in your life? Let me ask it differently. Is there someone or something that you are trusting in or depending on or going to more than or before you go to God? I'm going to say that that's a very complicated compound sentence, so I'm going to say that again. Is there someone or something that you are trusting in, depending on, going to more than or before you go to God? Or instead of. So just think about that for a second. And maybe you jot it down. Or maybe you get something in your head. Whatever that thing was or is, it, it might be an idol for you. Like, and I'm, it's not for me to say. I don't, I don't know that. Like, I, I can have something in my life that's fine for me. Not an idol. So that's between you and Jesus. So bring it to Jesus and ask him. Surrender it to him. Lord, is this an idol? Is this something I have to give up so that I can really experience life with you and flourishing? Whatever it is, I, I know this to be true. God wants your heart, right? That's that whole idea of being jealous. I didn't understand that for a long time. Like, he wants your heart because he's not just like, I want it for me. He's like, no, I want it for you. I want you I want to have your heart so that you can experience goodness and flourishing. And as delivered people, we can trust him enough to turn from our idols. Why? Because we are growing in confidence that he has our flourishing in mind. As delivered people, we can embrace new boundaries God asks us to put in place in our lives. Why? Because we are growing in confidence that, that he's not just keeping us from good, but he's leading us into what is actually good for us, right? Okay, so a little bit of application. The first application point is this. Turn back to God. Like, you know, there might even just be a little part of your life where like, I've turned away from the Lord because I have this thing. Turn back to God. I love how how Peter puts it, 1 Peter 2.25. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now... You have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your soul. And I love this picture, right? Like God is a shepherd and he's calling us back into the boundary lines and the fences that he's put around us for our goodness. And we're like sheep who are like, no, I'm good. Bye, dad. Like I'm out here. I'm, I, I got this. And he's like, no, 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 no. Come in. Turn back to me. Like let me be, be under my loving care. 
And here's the thing I want you to understand to hear that nobody in this room, nobody is too far gone, right? That they can't turn back to God and be healed. Nobody. Like even a meth addict or a heroin addict. And I remember, man, I remember like going to the scariest house you can ever imagine to rescue my sister, Michelle. In a bathtub, strung out on heroin, having no idea where she was or what was going on, right? And I, I had this thought to myself, and I, I even said it out loud. It was one of the first times where I just like couldn't have faith that God could save somebody. I was like, she's going to die like this. Like, there's no way. There's no way that God can save her. But God, he did it. Like, she's over two years clean. Because she gave her life to Jesus, right? Same is true for my brother, Chris. He's on a journey of recovery as well, too. He's turned away from meth and from pain pills and heroin. So turn back to God. So that, that question, and I wasn't even sure I was going to do this, but you know what? Like, we're all in here. We all have our eyes open. It's not the, like, eye-closed thing, you know, that we do sometimes to give us anonymity, but... Is there anybody that wants to turn back to God this morning and just give their life to Jesus for the first time? Anybody? Or is there anybody in this room who wants to say, I'm turning away from a thing and I'm turning back towards God? Does anybody in the room want to freshly say that this morning and just raise your hand and show it? Yeah. Good, I see you. I see you. I see you. Yep. He's worthy of it. Not only that, he's, he's not just worthy of it, but he, he wants it for you because it's good for you to turn back to him second application point is this. Get more acquainted with truth, right? Can we, is it possible to have enough of the truth of God's word in us? I don't think so, right? Get more acquainted with the truth. The more you are in his word and you are with him, the more that you can discern what is good and true and what will lead you to flourishing. The pull of our own desires and of culture is far too strong for us to not be people who are saturated in God's word. Amen? The pull is it's just too much. We have to be saturated in his word. I love how author Dallas Willard puts it. It's one of my favorite guys right now. His books are the best. He says, the process of spiritual formation, right? Becoming more like Jesus, we call it sanctification. The, the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing destructive images and ideas for, with the images and ideas that fill the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves towards a total interchange of your ideas and images for his. That's good, right? To live out what is true as Jesus did, we need to know what is true. Be with Jesus. Be in his word. Find out. You won't regret it. All you're going to experience is more life. So church, we're called to be truly free people. Amen? So let's live into it, right? As free people, we don't, we don't look back to, we don't have to look back to the empire to see how to live. And if we do look back, let's look back to remember God's faithfulness and what he did to rescue us, yeah? As free people, we look ahead towards God who is leading us. 
like the Israelites who followed the cloud. As free people, we don't walk alone as independent people. We walk in community as interdependent people. We need each other and we desperately need God. We cannot do this alone. Let's walk together. Let's walk with God right beside us. Amen? Amen. Amen.